Ladies and gentlemen, it is that time once again, broadcasting almost live from a secure bunker deep beneath an old Sears and Roebuck, it's Tavern Voices. I'm your host, Kevin King, and with me, as always, is my co-host and online mall walking partner, Tyler Crawley. How's it going, man? It's good. It's good. I like the uh, pattern of you're going to pick bankrupt businesses every week and say that we're broadcasting from one you know in the future one day people are going to be joking about amazon going out of business I'm like is it funny that people used to go to amazon.com like that's so dumb and just no it is i will say your tweet about people saying that that monoliths will never you know yeah. that they should be worried about them and directing them to the sears bankruptcy uh was on point so that's where i stole that from <laughs> no i mean it's it's hysterical because this is one story i love to tell i don't want to get too deep into the woods but at one point like in the mid 90s Sears had uh, it, you know, it was obviously had stores, it had its catalog, was number one in all those areas. It had a real estate branch, um, it had a real estate arm, I should say, a financial advising arm. It had an internet portal with Prodigy, it had its own credit card, Discover. And if it would have managed those correctly, they would be, they'd be Amazon and Walmart put together. And because they made a couple of mistakes, they, they shuttered the magazine, they didn't take advantage of their internet. They sold off some of the other assets, boom, bankruptcy. And so this idea that, you know, what is, you know, that whatever is on top will stay on top. I mean, and trust me, the thing is Bezos knows this. That's why he's constantly getting involved in all these weird things that we all go, that's so crazy. You're doing so well with this. What are you doing? He knows if he doesn't branch out, eventually it will come to an end. So, well, and um, isn't that the exact point that, us on the right side of the aisle try to point out yeah. when people talk about, you know, whether it be bailing out an industry, um, you know, or just talking about the free markets in general. I mean, put yourself in the early 1990s and and now in retrospect and say, should we have preserved Sears as like a government entity or is it not a good <laughs> thing that we now have Amazon and the businesses that are adapting. I mean, Macy's is doing well. Um, a couple other major brands, but like Penny's is pretty bad off. Sears is obviously bankrupt. Uh, they took with them Kmart, which was bankrupt. And that that probably had a yeah. lot to do with tanking them long term, was absorbing another failing company. But Well, and, and real quick here, uh, I can't remember who I was reading recently. It might have been... I don't know if it was Wall Street Journal New York, or National Review. I can't remember. But there was this great article, and they were talking about the transition from Sears to Amazon. And they pointed out that you know people like President Donald Trump and others will be like, the retail is going out of business. First of all, 85% of, of retail sales still happen in stores. So Amazon is the biggest of a 15% market share. So everyone should just calm down as to them taking over the world. Uh, but when it comes to the jobs, yes, retail jobs are disappearing. That is true. But Amazon uh, distribution centers, they're opening up all over the place, and those jobs pay more than retail jobs. And so we're replacing working at Sears with working at an Amazon distribution center, and you're actually getting paid more money. And that's what we call the beauty of capitalism. Not we shouldn't protect Sears. We should actually encourage Amazon to open more distribution centers. No, I think you're right. And also Amazon is a platform. They're helping. I mean, if you go into Amazon, I'm sure you can find products, um, you know, that have retail locations, you know, that are proprietary products. I'm trying to think of something off like uh, Levi jeans, for instance, they have retail stores and outlet stores, but they also have yeah. their own store on Amazon where, yeah, Amazon's getting a cut as the platform, but they're also helping keep that brand alive. Whereas if all you could do is get Levi jeans at Sears, well, what are you going to do? So it's it's also good for the individual products. It, well, and what's 
kind of crazy and Best Buy is doing an amazing job of this. That's one of the most miss stories, I think, of our time with regards to capitalism is how Best Buy, which should be going out of business because of Amazon and and is actually thriving. And one of the reasons why is because they're opening up stores within stores. So like there's like a cell phone sector and then you have like, you know, um, uh, Android will have its own little kiosk and and um, uh, like the 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 phone. What's the what's the uh, doorbell thing Ring. like Ringer will yeah. have its own kiosk and and all these they have their own little stores within the big store. And that seems to be very successful. And so Best Buy is a good example of someone that should be, you know, declining and is actually uh, 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 aggressively well, this growing. This is the last thing that I'll say on this subject because we we have gone deep into the woods. But you know, <laughs> I think that what, what Best Buy also proves is that you have to adapt to the internet or to any change. No industry should look yeah. at, at a change and say, I'm not going to embrace this because I firmly think Barnes & Noble is going to be next in, in the ones that go under. And my reason for this is that yeah. there is such a discrepancy even between the Barnes & Noble website – Amazon and Barnes and Noble in store. If you go into the store, it's generally 15 to 20% higher than even the, the Barnes and Noble website, which is higher than Amazon, or at least relatively competitive to Amazon. And, um, and so they're not adapting to this. And, and our generation is selecting a lot based on price because we have access to a price checking tool in our pocket. You know, if we walk into the store, it's cheaper on Amazon. I'm just going to order it. It'll be here in two days, so who cares? And I think Best Buy did a good job of price matching. And really, if if you ordered something online, getting it in the store quickly and efficiently, um, you know, Walmart sh- online to store is awful. Going into the Walmart just to pick up yeah. something you ordered is almost as bad as having to shop at Walmart. So I think that's where they're getting dinged by Amazon. But but Best Buy, on the other hand, did a did a really good job of sort of embracing how can we utilize people's behavior online and merge it in with our, you know, to, to improve our overall service to, uh, delivery. And I think they did that. I actually did that. I actually one time I was I was thinking about going to Best Buy, and. I bought it online and it said it was available in the store and so you can pick it up in an hour. And I drove in, walked right in and got it, walked out. It was like so easy. Um, And it also prevents you from buying more stuff. I'm like, oh, that's cool. But you're right. I mean, the reality is, is that there's one thing you have to do to survive um, and to adapt is, you know, play to your strength. Don't try and be Amazon, be Best Buy. And the one thing Best Buy has over Amazon is instant gratification. I mean, this, we always joke about how you can get movies, the, you know, split of a second. Um, you can get uh, you know, music on your phone. You can get movies the minute you want it. And so the one thing Amazon can never do, or at least as of right now, they can't get something to you right now, but Best Buy can. So Best Buy, you need to be able to, you know, to be able to see what it is in the store, look at it, and that's how they have to be able. So they need to make sure they have their inventory up to date and make sure they can get it to you right then and there. Because that's what I thought about buying. I think I was buying an iPad, and I thought I can buy it on Amazon, I can buy it on Apple, or I can buy it at Best Buy, and I can walk, I can go right there right now and get it. And I wanted it right now, and that's what I did. It wasn't big of a price difference, so why not just get it right now? And that's what Best Buy has. And so if they can. If they can take advantage of that um, and be, that's what Best Buy is doing. They're, they're being who they are. Now, speaking of instant gratification, let's talk about Donald Trump and the Stormy Daniels tweet battle, or I guess we can call it like the Lincoln Douglas 2018. Is that, <laughs> if I you guess, wanna, if you want to go that way, so, sure. 
<laughs> I mean, we, I, I don't know what else to call it here. So for those who didn't see it, and I don't know how you didn't, President Donald Trump, who I'm sure is in a great mood, a lot of good things have been happening for him. You know, Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, the economy is doing amazing. Stock market was up uh, or it's been up for the most part. Um, great economic numbers. The Democrats look like they're in retreat. The whole Elizabeth Warren, you know, just complete blow up in her face. He is feeling pretty good. And so when Trump gets like that, why not gloat? And so he gloated over the announcement that a judge had thrown out the Stormy Daniels defamation suit against the president. So the president, and I repeat, the president of the United States tweeted out, federal judge throws out Stormy Daniels lawsuit. By the way, he misspelled her last name. Was that intentional or not? That's up for debate. Federal judge throws out Stormy Daniels lawsuit versus Trump. Trump is entitled to full legal fees. And then he tags Fox News. At Fox News, great. Now I can go after Horseface and her third-rate lawyer, in the great state of Texas. She will confirm the letter she signed. She knows nothing about me. Total con. Now, of course, Stormy Daniels responded, tweeting, ladies and gentlemen, may I present your president in addition to his dot, 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 um, dot, 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 shortcomings. He has demonstrated his incompetence, hatred of women, and lack of self-control on Twitter again, and perhaps a penchant for bestiality. Game on tiny. So Kevin, I feel like I must quote Michael Scott from the office in speaking to president Trump, because I'm sure he listens to this podcast. Why are you the way that you are? I hate so much about the things that you choose to be. (laughs) I just, Kevin, can you explain to me why he felt the need to tweet that? Like things are going so good. Why in the world spike the football like that on, on the dumbest issue and get everyone talking about it. it? It it defies political logic. Well, his presidency defies political logic. How about we start there? I guess there? that's true. Um, you know, so you're talking about a person who has said whatever he wants to say at any time. I mean, there has been no point in his candidacy or presidency in which – it looks like he stopped and and had someone review. You know, he's not the kind of guy that says, hey, should I send this out? I don't think those words have ever come out of his mouth. Um, you know, people gave up on that a long time. Just the fact that he has two Twitter accounts so that he can still <laughs> tweet on. You know, he's probably got like a Motorola Razor or something that he's doing all this from. And, and so, no, it's it's not surprising. And, and why do I think that he did that? Because he does whatever he comes to his mind. And unfortunately, that is what a lot of his core supporters, I won't say all of his voters because that's a wide range of people, but a lot of his core supporters, this is exactly what they signed up for. This is what they've been talking about for two years. This guy doesn't care. He's not politically correct. He's not going to go into office and be told what to think and what to do. And I mean, he's fulfilling that. He, he's exactly what they think he is. And so, I, don't, I mean, I'm not surprised at this point. Well, it's so uh, Josh Jordan on uh, Twitter, handle numbers muncher, tweeted out, and this is like a little exchange he tweeted out, where it says AIDS. Mr. President, your approval rating is rising. The midterms are starting to look better for Republicans. Let's keep it calm and let this play out. And then it, it says Trump, and it says typing furiously on your phone. And then it says AIDS. What did you just tweet? And Trump's like, the Stormy Daniels is a horse face. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, I, I get it. I get it. And it was really funny because there was also another tweet from uh, Josh 
Crosher, I, I never can pronounce his name correctly, uh, who was evaluating a new poll that came out Texas Senate race. Beto O'Rourke is at 45%, down seven points to Ted Cruz. And people were saying, well, this is game over. And, and uh, Josh Crosher points out that Beto O'Rourke has been running a 45% race. All he's been trying to do is is motivate his base. And he hasn't done anything to reach out to moderates in Texas. And we're talking Texas here. So he's hoping that je- Democrats will be enough to push him over the ed- um, over the, um, the, the, uh, the finish line. And it's not. It's not going to work in Texas. And he says it's just not going to work. And there's a parallel there in that here Trump is looking at winning over people like myself, people who are not a big fan of him, but we've had all these victories. Things are going better. The Democrats are losing control. They're crazy in the way they wrecked the Kavanaugh. They're crazy over this Elizabeth Warren thing. I have no problem voting for the GOP come November. And they're winning people over like me. They're winning people over in the suburbs who they need to win over. These, you know, uh, upper middle class, highly educated, normally Republican voters who have been turned off by Trump. They're going back to the GOP. And then for no reason, he does the exact thing that people like myself and others can't stand for no other reason than let's just gloat about it. And that's what's so frustrating about politics today, that it used to all be about, you know, you you appeal to the base and then in the general, you go back to the middle and they're never going back to the middle. It's just base, 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 base. Well, it is. No, I think you're right. But to an extent, here's the other thing that I, that I wonder about, because now that I've deleted Facebook from my phone, and so now I'm just on Twitter most of the time, seeing what's going on. That's kind of where I get my snippets of, of information before I go you, back you to whatever. You exchange like crack for math. It's basically <laughs> yes, what you did. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. Is Twitter, Twitter, Twitter might be Twitter's more- Twitter's crack. Twitter would be crack, and I think yeah, Facebook would be meth. It's definitely meth crack. just kind of zone out. And crack, you get all excited about. You stay up, you stay up all night on meth. Yeah, that's what I watched. So you went from meth to crack. Yes. So I've exchanged one classy <laughs> drug for another, and um, I lost my whole train of thought. Oh, so here's my thing though: is, is is people like you and me? We are engaged. We know what's going on. We were anti-Trump from the beginning, not because of well, for a lot of reasons, right? I mean, most of it yeah. being philosophical. <laughs> we understand policies. We understand messaging and marketing. We knew that things like this would be an issue. We knew that his policies were bad. We knew that he was Bill Clinton 2.0. That's exactly what his presidency was, mm-hmm. minus the uh, the tax cuts, which we'll actually get to in a second. But, um, but my question really is, though, how much of this is really inside baseball that you and I look at and we we facepalm and we talk about? And it might even make it to the local news, right? It might be on the six o'clock news tonight when families are sitting around the television. But is it actually swaying people one way or the other like Kavanaugh hearing, I think, really had an impact on swaying people? You know, do people look at this and go, eh, Trump's an idiot or whatever, and they move on because they already know that they've already accepted that? Or do you think that this actually takes people and say, I'm now anti-GOP because he said horse face on Twitter? No, I don't think it sways anyone, but I think what it does is I think it does sway those. Like I said, there's there's a particular voter right now the GOP has counted on and has relied on, and that is the suburban, upper middle class, college educated voter who voted Republican. They liked the low taxes. They liked, you know, their policy, their stance on crime, law and order, um, kind of the limited government aspect. They like all of that, but they also, you know, they live in the suburbs. They wanted to get away from, you know, the city life and they sort of like, 
you may they're probably church going um, there and they definitely are. They're not a fan of Trump's sort of what's the word I'm looking for um, crude behavior. And those voters were coming back. I mean, I think they were feeling more comfortable. And I think that this will cause some of them to go, well, you know what? It's not they're going to vote Democrat. They're just not going to vote. And that's the problem. It's not that they're going to switch sides. It's just they're not going to show up because they just they're like, you know what? I'm just not going to get involved in this. This is just I don't like this and I don't want to pick a side. So I'm just not voting. And they would have showed up. And so that's why he just has to stay off of it. Right. No, and I, I think that you're right. And that was kind of where I was going with that is that, you know, is this enough to swing people to actually support the other party, to abandon the party? And at this point, I mean, uh, it, it can kind of be argued that there's a lot more similarities than differences between the parties in some aspects, because as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the, you know, kind of the big signature policy of the Trump administration so far has been his tax reform. And in a major overhaul uh, of the tax system that they pushed through last year, American individuals as well as uh, you know corporations, small businesses, pretty much everyone saw major relief in allowing them to keep th- their own hard-earned money. And as any right-leaning economist would predict, the results of this tax reform have been fuel to the fire of this already hot economy. In fact, the federal government has collected record high tax revenues this year. However, in true 2018 fashion, we are also seeing a near record budget deficit as Republicans have done absolutely nothing to rein in federal spending, much like their Democratic counterparts. So, Tyler, is this sheer incompetence or is Trump just making it rain? <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with this one. We could do you know four hours on this. I mean, what's happening right now well, in Washington? You is, have you is, have about six minutes. Go. Okay, I can do six minutes. Okay, so here's what I'll say is that the biggest problem for the Republicans, this is the biggest problem, and I try and point this out anytime I get the opportunity, is there is a fundamental misreading of the Laffer curve, which is like the GOP go-to talking point when talking about cutting taxes. The, The argument on the Laffer curve is that when you cut taxes, you bring in more revenue. The problem is, is that people don't understand exactly what that means. People think that, let's say, I'll keep the numbers very simple. Let's say you're taxing at $50,000 or 50% and you're bringing in $5,000. People think that if you lower it to 40%, you're then going to bring in $5,000 in one. And so look, we've brought in more money. That's not what the Laffer Curve says. The Laffer Curve says if you drop to 40%, traditional thinking is that you're now only going to bring in $4,000. But the Laffer Curve says that actually you're going to bring in more revenue because you're going to encourage commerce and encourage productivity. And so let's say you bring in 4,500. So you brought in more dollars than you thought because the baseline shifted, but you're not bringing in more than if you had taxed more. And so what happens is Republicans go, yeah, but we're going to bring in more money. Yeah, only if you move all of the baselines down. So if we would have cut spending with the tax tax cuts, we would be in a great place, but we didn't. And so even though we're getting record revenue in, that's awesome. We're also spending a record. I saw it was at 4.1 trillion. Is what we're spending now. The projection is by 2020 or by um, in 10 years, we're going to be running, I think, uh, a two trillion dollar deficit. I mean, this is this is like scary, scary stuff about what's going to be happening. And I, I to be honest with you, I have I, I don't know how you solve it because I mean, we're almost at the point where I mean, you could cut the entire government and entitlement spending alone would be 100 percent of our budget or 100 percent of our revenue. 
So I don't know where you go, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, the real numbers are this. I mean, you're dead on. We're looking at about $4.1 trillion in spending and $3.3 trillion in revenues. So we're looking at a somewhere in the neighborhood of a $900 billion deficit this year with record revenues. I mean, the number coming in is almost $1.7 trillion just in individual income taxes. And that's when you have cut income taxes, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know how what you do about that because the truth of the matter is, is this is slowly going to, to matter, right? I mean, we've been talking about this for a decade, and it's kind of funny to look back at the numbers that I actually watched a, uh, an old Ride on Campus episode a few months ago, and we were talking about the <laughs> deficit of Obama's first year in office, and we thought that the world was coming to an end. I mean, we were nearing 100% debt to GDP ratio, and now obviously that ship has sailed. But I think it, it really will start to matter in the fact that, I mean, what are, what, what are we going to do? I mean, we, we printed money for so long and now we're fixing that and we're raising interest rates as we should. The, the, they're trying to stabilize the financial picture of the country while at the same time just spending, spending, spending. I mean, in, Trump has increased defense spending, which you would – expect from i mean that's what the the warhawks and the the neocon side of the the republican party always does i mean a strong defense so without any sort of entitlement reform i don't i don't know where you go from here and it's it's amazing to me that entitlement spending is still so high given how well the economy is doing because we that was part of the problem in in 09 and you know 08 09 10 that you had so many people who lost their jobs. So then they went from paying income taxes to now withdrawing money from the federal government. But now you have people in jobs paying income taxes, record amounts coming in, and, and you're still just just pumping more of that back out. I, I don't know where you go. And, and I will say this real quick before we, um, we change topics here, is I did actually see something in the National Review um, where this guy actually – I can't remember who it was that spelled it out, but they actually had a plan and it actually didn't require crazy tax tax hikes or really cuts. It, it, it was somewhat moderate cuts to Social Security, sort of means testing it in a way, as, lo- as well as Medicare and even Medicaid, a lot of reforms because those programs are just horribly run. And you know, the funniest thing to me about this <laughs> is that I love when you ever talk about Social Security and everyone goes, you got to, you know, we got to, it's it's the biggest expenditure and they're, gonna, they're, they're about to see a, a, a increase next year. Uh, which just shows you how serious they're taking the threat in DC. The fact that the biggest expenditure they're going to increase by two percent, um, they're they're increasing it, and it's the biggest expenditure that we have. But the one thing that drives me crazy, you say, okay, we got to reform this. We're going to have to cut benefits, and people go, hey, well, I paid into it, and that argument doesn't fly with me because me and you are also paying into it, and by all accounts, it's going to be gone. So you telling me, hey, it's not fair. I paid into it. Now you're going to give me fifty percent back. We're looking at zero. <laughs> so if you want to tell me how unfair it is that you're only going to get 50% of what you thought, considering we're looking at getting zero, that argument maybe might work with you know the, the greatest generation, <laughs> but it's not going to work with us because I don't really care that you thought you were going to get more because I'm pretty much, and you're probably p- pretty much planning on not getting anything. So I mean, don't don't feed me. Yeah, that. you'll probably get you know twenty five or thirty percent when when you retire, and then by the twenty years later, <laughs> I retire. Uh, it'll it'll definitely all be gone by then. 
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 going to be completely gone. All right, speaking of things being gone, Airbnb, I'm a huge fan of. We were just talking about the economy, the changing economy, all that good stuff when we started the show. The Raleigh City Council is looking to follow Asheville's lead, which is always a dangerous sentence, right? I don't care which city that's there, but anyone that's following Asheville's lead could be problematic. Following Asheville's lead (laughs) in handling homestays and short-term rentals, the proposed rules include requiring a property owner to be on the premise while guests are staying at the property and prohibiting accessory dwelling units like garage apartments, things like that, to be used as homestays. People would also be prohibited from renting their entire home. And while short-term rentals like Airbnb are technically banned right now in Raleigh, the city hasn't enforced the rules while regulations are being worked out. Asheville, of course, has the same problem. We've heard the story about the guy that has like the million-dollar fines or whatever it is. So, Kevin, here is my question. Instead of requiring a cheap business license and then taxing Airbnb properly and making money, isn't it inevitable that Raleigh is going to ban it, set up an agency, hire workers, waste taxpayer money to enforce a rule that is losing them money? Is that the only way Raleigh's going to go? I mean, is there any way they go another direction? I mean, of course, that's the only way they're going to go. I mean, we saw this with Uber and they finally let up and allowed. Well, I mean, they, the they banned. forced them. Yes, very true. So you saw this with Uber. They're going to do it with Airbnb. Um, they're going to do it with anything that they can because um, what people don't realize, and and I'm going to try not to go conspiracy theorists because I don't think it's a conspiracy theory, but really and truthfully, a lot of people in power in local government are property developers and property owners, right? Because they have a huge interest in property taxes and being able to get things rezoned. And that, that's kind of how things work. That's how cities keep their power is through zoning. So if you're a developer and maybe you want to put in an apartment complex or rental units and you've got a piece of land, you need it rezoned so you can use it for that, you befriend the local commissioners. So now that you have local commissioners befriended, and this also goes for for special permit use and and all of the the things that local government gets to control with property values and uh, with property uses. And so you take those people and you're threatening their livelihoods by letting just anybody rent out their garage apartment, right? If you can rent out your garage apartment for you know five hundred bucks a month and it's a thousand dollars for a studio apartment at one of these brand new fancy high rise apartment complexes like they have here in Raleigh. Well, which way do you think people are going to go? Because, and the, the only reason I say this is because every year the conversation in local government is the buzz phrase of affordable housing. We need more affordable housing. Yet at the end of the day, what happens? You get new, expensive, high-rise apartment buildings. You've seen this in Asheville. You've seen it in Raleigh. I don't know how it is in Wilmington, mm-hmm. but the the affordable housing never shows up. But yet, all of these new, really nice apartment buildings get rezoned and and approved and built. Well, no, I will say though, in defense of that is that um, what they've actually found, and I think I read this over at Reason, is that they had a report and that that actually creates affordable housing in a different way and that what it does is, is it, so in a new high-rise apartment complex that's super nice comes in, it takes whatever the next highest one at that point now now is, the was the best, now second best, they now have to lower their rent in order to keep the people because otherwise they'll just go to the better one. And then, and then on and on and on it goes. And so it actually ends up helping people um, but to your point, well, it about- depi- 
Yeah, I will. I will just one to that point is I will say that also depends on demand and availability to pay. Yeah. Right? I mean, if you're talking about uh, a single parent who can't afford a thousand dollars a month, dropping it to nine fifty or nine twenty five doesn't necessarily help. Well, them, but the argument right? is, is there'd be the, the ripple effect. And so you're right. They wouldn't be able to afford the second best one or the third best one. But like the 10th best one that was at seven hundred may have to go to six hundred now because the one that was at eight now went down to seven. And so it's supposed to have a no, ripple I, effect. I, no, I agree. And, and I think that it does, obviously. And the more supply that you have, um, it just depends on the, the demand key. side of it. Supply is right. I mean, that's it's a demand because demand never changes because you have how many people in the area people can move in. I get that. But the demand sort of remains constant because it's, you know, it's constantly growing. The people that are living there always need a place to stay. And so the, the only solution is supply. You have to you have to encourage more supply, whether that's rentals, whether you're know, short term, long term, whatever it is, and why government insists on limiting supply like they always do. And I think it's you're right. I mean, you, you talked about the developers. We know that hotels are concerned they're going to lose. And also the governments are concerned about the um, uh, was the hotel occupancy. And so there's a whole there's a there's a whole bunch. There's a lot to it. Um, and the reality is, is that just let let the markets dictate. Um, because there are some people that hate Airbnb. They would never stay there. Like older people would never stay. I've never done it. I've always been a little wary of it. And so it's, I don't think it's as big of a disruption as they make it out to be, but it should be a little bit of a disruption, um, because that's always good for the economy. Right. I mean, basically what you have to go back to the beginning of the show is local government trying to prop up Sears and Roebuck. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's not going to turn out well for anyone, especially, especially when you can tax it. Right. I mean, isn't that always the obvious solution? Like you said, get an Airbnb permit and charge something, you know, five hundred dollars a year or something. And you have to be a a licensed and and advertise that. And and Airbnb might even pop on and say, you know, this is an officially licensed property or something. There's a background check. I don't know. But but there are ways to spin it. I mean, I'm never advocating for taxing anything unless it's instead of banning something. Yeah, and and I, and I think that's and I, and I think if you want to charge Airbnb the hotel occupancy tax, I think that's totally makes sense. Um, and charge them a little business license, like you do with short term rentals. I mean, I don't know actually. To be honest with you, I don't know how short term rentals. I think it depends on the area. Some places require some sort of a business license because I mean, here at Wrightsville Beach, I mean, half the island is rented out in short term rentals, and most beach towns are. And so this idea that people are like, it's going to ruin the area. It's dude, we already do it. I mean, in downtown, there's a lot of rentals, and so. There are a lot of short-term rentals that already exist. All Airbnb does is make it easier for people. Um, and, you know, a lot of it's, I think, old old people who are, you know, very Luddite-like and they're scared of this new technology. And so, you know, don't be afraid of it. It's your friend. Embrace it. Embrace, <laughs> embrace the change. Just like we have embraced these Republican policies in North Carolina over the last eight years. See, um, unlike the federal government, North Carolina actually has their financial house in order. Since the Republican takeover in 2010, billions in debt have been replaced with billions in a rainy day surplus, all while also lowering taxes, which was going to your point, Tyler, about the proper utilization of the Laffer curve. You can lower taxes, and as long as you keep spending under control, you can rein in surpluses. Absolutely. Monday night, in a continued effort to help those impacted by Hurricane Matthew, which was two years ago now, and then more recently, Hurricane Florence and Matt, uh, Michael, which were back-to-back, another 800 um, – I'm sorry – 
typo, 800 million was appropriated, bringing the total to 1.2 billion since 2016 for disaster relief. And not a dime of that had to come from tax increases, whether permanent or temporary otherwise, which is typical in this particular kind of situation. Most places have to do some sort of temporary tax increase when they see a natural disaster come through. So, Tyler, Tyler, I have a question for you. Sure. With how close the polls are for this November, does this really mean that North Carolinians prefer taxes and spending over what we've had over the last eight years? <laughs> uh, yeah, I tell you, it, it's it's hard to understand what the people truly want because or what they truly know, I guess I should say, because if you look at I mean, Roy Cooper's acting like this is his surplus, like this is his rainy day fund. Like, good thing I uh, built this rainy day fund when I got elected. I mean, I, I don't think anyone has any idea that he wanted to spend that money almost immediately upon getting elected and give teacher raises. So, you know, it's so funny because it's like, I don't know what people know because Roy Cooper seems a big fan of that rainy day fund and Democrats do. I mean, they wanted to deplete it. So it, it, it's really bizarre. To, I would love to do a poll and ask people whose idea was it for this rainy day fund? And, you know, do you like it? Do you not? And, and then ask at the end, you know, what do you think about Roy Cooper who wanted to spend that money two years ago on a short-term stimulus, AKA teacher raises or bonuses or whatever it was he was going to spend the money on. And I would love to know what that was because I don't think most people have any, I think, I think they think Cooper it's Cooper's uh, rainy day fund and man, thank goodness we elected him. <laughs> it's got to drive the legislators crazy. If it weren't, if it weren't for Cooper, we'd be in such bad shape right now, you know, and, and I, I have to ask about this, as well, because I mean, I think that you're right. I think it's all about perception. And I think that honestly, the Republican Party does a really bad job of getting information out. I mean, granted, we can talk about media bias, um, especially with how they keep proving Trump right <laughs> over the last couple of weeks. But <laughs> um, but really and truthfully, they, they do a hard time, a, a bad job of getting good information out. And so I do wonder how many people actually know what the situation was in in 2009 when they had to furlough teachers, when they had to increase taxes, when they had to cut spending on different programs because the books were in such bad shape versus now where things are in good shape. And I mean, really, isn't that how most people work, though? As long as things are good and they've got a good paycheck and they're spending money, they don't think about it. But then when they lose their job, then they go, well, what am I going to do now? There, there's never that preemptive thinking of preparing for a bad situation. Well, what is it they say that um, it's like um, a recession is when your neighbor loses his job and a depression is when you lose yours. And so it's yeah, I mean, people, they don't really care about the planning until you and that's why you need people to plan. That's why you need to elect people that, that talk about, hey, what's going to happen in the future? Because, I mean, Washington's a great example of no one is concerned about what's going to happen 10 years from now. It's all what's going to happen at this point, one month and less than that. And then it's what's going to happen in 2020 and then 2022 and 2024. And we're on this you know, short term way of thinking that even, no one cares about the national debt. I mean, there's nobody that's going to touch it because, oh, it would be it'd be it'd be difficult and no one likes to do difficult anymore. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this is for for fairness of reporting or commentating or whatever we're doing right now, you know, 
the both sides of the aisle have different perspectives on money. And in fact, this is in one of the um, one of the first season episodes of The West Wing. Um, they're talking about how they have a surplus. And um, oh, did, did you watch The West Wing? Yeah. Okay. I saw the first so you, two seasons. So I can't think. Um, Josh, right? That's his name. Yeah, the, Josh uh, Lyman. Josh Lyman is asked by his uh, assistant about uh, the surplus. And she said, why don't you oh, give yeah. the money back? <laughs> and he said, why? Because we're Democrats. And she says, well, that doesn't seem very fair. Wasn't it our money to begin with? And so they kind of have this back and forth uh, talk about what to do with the surplus. And that same conversation has happened in Raleigh. I mean, there are people on the right side of the aisle, Tea Party, libertarian type people who do say when there's a surplus, it should go back to taxpayers. And then there was, and, and so there, there was a little bit of a fight of how big to build this rainy day fund as they've had, what, three or four straight years of, of massive surpluses. Um, so, so, I mean, what do you think? I mean, do you think that we should, should build up these big funds? How much is reasonable versus should people actually get some of that money back? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think we should save the money uh, because if we don't, there's a constitutional amendment we're looking at right now. And one of the big concerns is what happens if the economy you know, goes into the crapper and we need money? Well, first of all, this idea that we're going to increase taxes by 50%, which is basically what we'd be doing. We'd be dropping it or we'd be raising it from five to seven, which is it's almost 50%. No politician in the world is going to do it. I don't care how bad the economy is. So that's just insane that they're talking about that. But it also justifies it. So yeah, let's get it down to seven. And if the economy does go to the crapper, we got two billion dollars sitting on the side. We'll be able to we'll be able to weather the storm. And so, when you cut taxes, there's always the fear about losing the revenue. But as long as you have that money, you can make your argument. And so it's 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 essentially being fiscally prudent all the time in every aspect of your life. It would be like if you had a financial advisor who had to declare bankruptcy or was always late paying his bills and was always having, you wouldn't go to that guy because even though it's not you and that's not your account, you would still question his judgment. And so if the Republicans are constantly being fiscally responsible, when they go and do something that people go, Oh, that might not be a good idea. It's like, well, I trust them because every other decision they've made has been well. So yes, I think every aspect, they always need to be thinking what's going to happen, you know, plan for the best or hope for the best plan for the worst. That's what you're doing by building a trust fund. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe it should be capped. I mean, do we need $10 billion in a rainy day fund? Probably not. But do we need two, three billion? Yeah, I think that's okay. I mean, I don't know what the cap is, but I think that uh, you know, having billions of dollars there clearly is to our benefit, especially a state that's prone to natural disasters. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think that um, I'll let you relish this great moment of, of intellectual thought that you just displayed on our podcast, but let's go ahead and end on that note. But I do, do you have any predictions on how many tweets from the president we will be talking about on the next episode of the podcast? Mm, I, you know, it, it's, I learned on, what was it? November 6th, 2000, or I guess November 7th, 2016. I will no longer make predictions about Donald Trump. <laughs> it's, <laughs> when he won the presidency and I went, Whoa, all right, that's it. My, uh, my uh, uh, political vein and trying to predict things doesn't work on Donald Trump. So I am done making predictions on Donald Trump. That is, that is a tool I've removed from my toolbox. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. So now you just have your, uh, your, your, I guess, regular old talk radio tools. So <laughs> make sure you make sure you keep that with you and we'll do it all again next week. I thought you were going to make a joke about some about Donald Trump pulling out his tool of his toolbox with Stormy Daniels, but okay. No, no, wasn't going to go there, but apparently we did. <laughs> and I guess I know what the title of this episode will be. 